Oldville Church, my name is Michael Feeling. I'm the lead pastor here, and this morning I have the joy of opening up God's Word with you. We'll be in Genesis chapter 17. What are the two most significant personal decisions that you have made this year? Just kind of think about your life, go through the year from January to now. What are the two most significant personal decisions that you have made? It might be um, a home change, moving. It could be a new job or a change in your job. Again, these are decisions not made necessarily for you, but decisions you have the opportunity to make. It could be a purchase. It could be relationships. Some of you have gotten engaged. Uh, Some of you most recently got married. Some of you uh, made a decision to start trying to have a baby. It could be a new church. Um, You've made a decision to try to land in a, a new church. For whatever reason, that's an enormous decision. It could be changes in schooling. That's, that's another opportunity. It might be how you think about your education and some decisions you made on that level. Just what are the two biggest decisions that you have made in 2018? I'll share um, the two that came to my mind immediately. I don't know what my wife would say, but for me, these are the, these are the two. The first major decision, I would say, the, I don't know if it's top one or two, but it uh, really comes down to uh, a decision that we made with my wife's business. And so we really felt like we needed to make some major decisions on that side of things. And, uh, and actually, those decisions, when, when we were deciding to make them, would change um, the whole dynamic of our personal and private lives as well. Like our whole 2018 has looked very different than we thought it would look because of some of the decisions that we made. Um, number two... Um, uh, this may sound like bragging, and if it does, A, you probably don't know me, but B, it's actually more indicting than anything, um, teen and into 18. Um, I almost felt like the Lord is saying to me, Michael, you keep trying to push down doors that I haven't opened for you. Um, you keep trying to do things in your own strength, but, that's, but it's really not your job. You're trying to do my job for me, so you just stop it and let me do some things. And, and so actually, um, this has been a year where I've just tried to do less in terms of trying to knock doors down and, and go before the Lord and say, all right, here's what I think you want. Will you open the door? And uh, kind of the trick of 2018 has been just to let him open doors, and then as he opens them, we just walk through them. That's been our desire. That's been our goal. Um, one, one of the, I think, crazy thoughts that God has brought into my brain this year, you know, like you know some things, but you don't really like believe them, maybe? Like, they, like they're always there, and you're like, how did I not get this sooner? Um, one of the thoughts that I could probably teach on if I really like, was going to do it, but really hadn't struck my heart, was how much God cares, not just about the major decisions in my life, but how actually obsessive he is about every decision that I make. That God has a very meticulous and very specific desire and opinion on everything that I do. Like, let me just read for you this one passage of scripture to maybe give you the tip of the iceberg here. Um, This is from the book of Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. It says, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Um, and this is actually a really consistent theme with judgment. Judgment isn't just for the big things in your life, but the very little things. That God has a really strong opinion on even the minute little things of our day, let alone the big decisions. Now, God, God's opinion, this is what we would call God's will. Um, it is, is going to be the decision or action that God desires most. It's going to be the decision of all the best options. It's going to bring you the most good and God the most glory. It's the thing that he really, really wants to happen. That's God's will. So regularly, we're like, God, what is your will? What's your opinion on this? Because whatever your opinion is, ultimately, that is what I want. Can I tell you the thing that drives me the most nuts about the will of God? It is this. He never tells me what's after the next step. He's always like, take a step. 
I don't want to. Take a step. I don't want to. Take a step. Do it. Take a step. Okay, fine. Now what? I'll tell you in a minute. Just kidding. I'll tell you in a month. Just kidding. I'll tell you in a month. Just stay here for a minute, right? And the funny thing about the will of God is that it's only ever clear in retrospect, right? So I just walk through a door. I'm like, what's through this door? Door number three. I'm like, oh, interesting. Now, how long do I stay in this room for when I unlock the next door? Okay. So I wait and I wait and I stare at the door and then he opens it. And I'm like, what's coming through this door? And then all of a sudden I get to the end. And I'm like, oh, that was the plan the whole time, right? And it's really aggravating because this is so the way God works. He's got a really strong opinion. He's got a very strong desire, but he doesn't tell me. And he only tells me the very next thing he wants me to do. And I'll be honest, like, I'm like, God, I think I think you could do better with me. Like, there's a better way that I work, you know? Like, I don't really work with these incremental steps. I really work with the whole story all at once so I can, like, process it. Anybody else feel that way? For, for Abram, God has a plan. And this plan is being very slowly and incrementally revealed. In fact, um, much of the plan, right? Abram will never, ever, ever in his lifetime ever see the promises that God makes to him come to fruition. All he knows is go from here to here. Well, what's going to happen when I get there? I'm going to tell you when you get there. Okay, here's the next promise. Okay, when's it going to happen? I'm not telling you anything. I'm going to go away for a long time. You're just going to have to wait, right? This is the nature of God because what is he trying to do in Abram and us? Faith, 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 right? right? He wants a people who will trust him no matter what. And so the reason God doesn't tell you everything is because he's trying to grow your faith. And then when we slowly doubt him and make really ridiculous decisions because he hasn't given us all the breadth of knowledge that we need to trust him fully, uh, what does it do? It exposes our lack of faith. And then the cross just screams over us, okay, now come back to me. You are forgiven. The blood of Christ cleanses you. Let's do this again. And this is what God is doing. He's building faith. And the way he does that is being really ominous about the future. Let me just, let me give you a a time span that we've dealt with so far in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12 to 17 uh, spans 24 years. We met Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Pop quiz, Abram becomes who? Abraham, that's today. That's going to happen today. Um, 75 years old, God meets him and Ur, offers him a bunch of promises, but doesn't tell him when they're going to come to fruition, what's going to happen, how all this thing is going to pan out. And Abram goes, but on the way, he stops in a place called Haran, which is a family town for Abram. And he stops there, and finally the Lord ultimately has to take his father's life, and then he also has to take him out of Haran. The, uh, Acts chapter 7 takes, says that the Lord had to remove him from there, had to take him out and get him going again. Even Abram, the man of faith, his process, his journey was filled with an incredible amount of doubt because it was really, really hard for him to trust God with all the unknowns of the future. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, here's what we find. The covenant that God made in chapter 12, the promises that he made, he finally again ratifies them and it gives them a little bit more detail. But that takes 10 years. 10 years, all he has is a few small promises and the command to go. And finally, 10 years later, God shows up again in in chapter 15. Last week, we saw Genesis chapter 16. Abram's 86 years old. He's disobeyed, abandoned the promises again, and has Ishmael through Hagar, his wife's maidservant. By the way, husbands, should you ever have a baby with your wife's servant? The answer is... No, don't do that. It's not going to go well for you, and it does not go well for Abram. Finally today, chapter 17, he's 99 years old. It's 24 years. This is a really, really long time. And this morning, I want to, through the life of Abraham, share with you just two really, I think, meaningful, meaningful truths about the plan and the will of God from the life of Abram. Here's the first truth. God's plan is always better. 
Like, don't get me wrong. You're really smart and good looking and everything else, but God is better. Like, I, I love getting advice from you, and I love hearing all of your thoughts on life in the future, but I just want to tell you, do you know who's smarter than you? God is, infinitely so, and whatever ideas you have, his are better. And so I've learned that God's mind is the best mind, and I want what he wants, and I want to go where he says to go, and and his plans are always going to be better. Now, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, I want you to just let this sink in for a moment. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Let's just pause What is the last thing that happened at the end of Genesis 16? Well, here's what we know. Ishmael is born 13 years ago. And now he's waiting. Okay. Is 13 years a long time for you to not hear from God? If God gave you a word 13 years ago and didn't show up for 13 years and went radio silent, and you were 99 years old, would you be tempted to doubt? Absolutely. Like one, one of the things I love about Abraham is that the New Testament looks back on him as a friend of God and this man of incredible faith. And don't get me wrong, he was. But this man had to grow into this. And this guy is human, just like the rest of us, which gives me great and amazing encouragement. Um, there's a few things that have happened in these 13 years. Hagar has displaced Sarah as his new first love. Uh, Ishmael, not the chosen one, is a wild donkey of a kid. Uh, He's always fighting. He's always getting in the way. But Abraham, Abram at this time, loves Ishmael. Like Ishmael is his favorite. He, He just can't imagine anything better. And where's Sarah in all of these 13 years? Ladies, how do you think their marriage is going? Like, probably not super great. And you're going to see some things happen in this chapter. They're going to aggravate you to the very core. Um, the last 13 years in, in Abram's life have been topsy-turvy relationally. And, and so like, you're, you're in a place right now where you're like 99 years. You just attempted to read by it. I'm in a new chapter in my devotional for the day. Um, but when you really connect the end of chapter 16 to the, to the beginning of 17, there's a lot going on. And so finally the Lord appears. And here's what it says. The Lord says to him, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. Okay, I don't, I don't like this phrase. I'm going to tell you why. Because I have no capacity to be blameless. Like, there's not an ounce in me that has the ability to be blameless. Like, there's a lot of blame in my life that I'm personally responsible for. And so imagine God goes to Abram, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, and says to him, be blameless. Like, and then you just look at his track record, and Abram should be like, not possible. Um, I'm sorry. What are, you, what are you doing here? And so there are uh, two major interpretations of what this could mean. Here's, here's the first one. Being, be blameless means um, be good and do the best you can. And there's a lot of Christian scholars who think this is just, hey, man, try your best. Okay? Um, the words for me just don't quite cut it. The context for this doesn't quite cut it to land there. The other option is this. Be perfect. Don't fail the covenant we've made. Up, uphold your end of the covenant perfectly without error. I think actually this is what he means. And we're going to get to that in a minute, but I think this is what he means because if you go back to Genesis chapter 15 in a very normal ancient Near Eastern covenant, they would cut the bodies of animals in half. Um, Two people about to make a covenant would hold hands and they would walk through the covenant reciting the terms of the covenant and the dead bodies were a symbol of what would happen to the person who violates the terms of the covenant. 
And then there would be birds, but they wouldn't be cut. And the birds were a symbol that if you violate the terms of the covenant, you're going to be dead meat, and the birds of the air are going to eat your corpse. Like, this is very, very vivid imagery. And so when God looks to Abram and says, be blameless, right? Here's what I think is happening. I think God is accentuating again this point. You have no ability to keep this covenant. But what God did in the covenant is this. He did not walk through with Abram. He walked through all by himself, put Abram to sleep, communicating this to Abram. Not only will I be responsible for the blessings of this covenant, but I will also take on my body, on myself, the repercussions should you break them. And so even again, God is saying, look, the terms, the stipulations, the requirements of this thing, it's blamelessness. And you should be very well aware that you have no ability to uphold your end of the covenant, which is why ultimately Jesus Christ had to die. Jesus Christ's death is a fulfillment of this Abrahamic covenant promise that God would take on himself the punishment for our sins. One of the beautiful things about the economy of God, the spiritual economy of God, uh, the judge of God, the laws of the universe is this. He accepts substitute sacrifices. And so thankfully, in the divine economy, God allows Jesus to be our substitute, to take our punishment in our place. And in fact, that's what's happening in Genesis 15 with these cut animals, is God is communicating, they, I will permit, in my divine legal judicial system, I will permit a substitute, but the substitute has to be perfect. And so God himself takes on himself the full weight and responsibility for Abram's inevitable blamefulness. Is that even a word? I don't know. Here's, here's what he goes on and says in verse 2. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Verse 3 says this, then Abram fell on his face. This is an act of prostration and worship. Why did he fall on his face? Because he vividly remembers what happened in Genesis 15. And he knows full well how much and often he has violated the terms of the covenant and that there is not blamelessness in him. And he understands that the only way he could ever be in a relationship with this God is if this God took on the punishment on himself. This is, this is nothing short of an act of worship and gratitude. And then God reiterates the covenant with Abram, despite Abram. God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And then this is the point where Abram does not deserve a single thing that is about to happen to him. Not a single thing. God intervenes and gives him the absolute unbelievable blessing of a new name. Here's what he says. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Personal note. So thankful for this because it's really hard to remember to say Abram. So we're going to say Abraham from now on. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Okay. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Let's just pause for a moment. Let's take a step back and let's look at the name of Abram. Abram simply means this, exalted father. Um, The name is actually sort of an embarrassment because up to 75 years old, despite all the vision that this name would have for Abram. Up to 75 years old, everywhere he went, he was called exalted father, but he had no kids. None at all. 85 years old. Finally, finally his maidservant conceives. I mean, this is actually a really shameful, constant, regular reminder. 
And even, even the kid he has now isn't like really that much to be proud of. And don't get me wrong, like the kid's going to do incredible things because Yahweh has blessed him. But at the end of the day, Abram goes from exalted father and he's given a new name, Abraham, which means the father of multitudes. Here, here's what happens. Every time Abraham's name from this point on is called, he will be vividly, audibly reminded of the promises that God has made. So should he ever forget God's promises, God has endowed and endued it into the very name that he is called by everyone around him. And everybody who calls his name from now on will be reiterating and declaring again the promise of God over this man's life. Do you remember um, some new names in scripture? Um, Simon, um, which is just a normal Jewish name, uh, he got the name Cephas. You guys remember what Cephas means? Rock, right? That's a sweet name. You go from like, ah, Michael, to awesome, right? That's like a really awesome name change. Like, I'm going to build my church on you. It's going to be amazing. This is, I think, maybe what Peter is uh, taking in. That was an awesome name change. And then you get like Paul. Uh, originally, his name was Saul, which is just to get a common Jewish name. And I imagine actually Paul was thinking like, give me the name Nicholas because I'm going to be a conqueror or some sweet name, right? No, he gets named Paul, which means very, very insignificant, <laughs> you know? And here's Paul. He's like, I'm so awesome in the Jewish world. And God's like, bam, smush. You're not that important. In fact, your whole life is going to be one of pain and misery until you die. It's going to be sweet. Like, you're not that important anymore. Like, what a cra- like, that's a disappointing name change. But a name change signifies a new identity, a new future, the promise of God over your life. Like, this is a very beautiful thing. It's a certain promise of God in your life. Now, did you know, this is just a little like one-on-one for you, um, I don't know when or how it's all going to break down, but it seems, Scripture tells us that you and me as followers of Christ are going to get a new name when we get to heaven. Here's just a little glimpse. This is Revelation 2.17 uh, to the church in Pergamum. It says this, to the one who conquers, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. I don't know what my name is going to be. Um, everything I come up with will probably be too like, like, I don't know, self-promoting, right? God will probably be like, humbled, you know, that'll be my name. I don't know. But it's good. whatever it is, though, like, there's somehow this, this new identity, even though when you get to heaven, that God's just like, look, I know who you were. I knew who I've called you to be. Now here's who you're going to be forever. It's going to be beautiful. Genesis chapter 17, we're going to jump to uh, verse 15, and we're going to look and see what happens with Sarai. And God said to Abram, Abraham now, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. The name Sarai means princess. And actually, it's an Eastern Mesopotamian dialect of this. Do you remember where they came from originally? Ur of the Chaldees in Mesopotamia, right? That's what, so they're from the east, they're far away. Um, and so this was the name princess, which actually makes you wonder, okay, um, who was she when Abram married her? Um, that her name was actually princess. Like, this is kind of pretentious if she didn't come from some sort of, of royal blood. And so you get this idea, like, there's this backstory to this woman that her name and the text just kind of hints at. Isn't it interesting when she goes to Egypt, what is she? She's so incredibly beautiful that kings and pharaohs want to bring her into her home and kill her husband so they can take her as a wife. There's something interesting, interestingly royal about her. But Sarah is funny because Sarah means princess too, right? But here's what it is. It, it, it's, it's the dialect of the Canaanites. It's the Western dialect. It's just a different ebb and flow of the term and a different nuance of the word. And, and here's what God is communicating to her. You were of those people, but now you are a new people. You were of the East, and now you are of the West. 
You were of the Mesopotamians, and now you are the land of, of, you are of the people of the Hebrews. And it was just a beautiful, subtle name change that would not have been caught on her. It's like if you're in the north and God says, you can say the word you, and you go to Texas and it's like, y'all, right? You just know it. You know that even just in terms of who in the country uses those words, where they're from and what they mean. And so even this subtle name change is going to have profound implications for her personally. You are no longer Sarai, the princess of the east, but I'm making you into Sarah. You are going to be the princess of the west, and your husband is going to be a king, and from you and from him, kings will come from you and your body. Verse 16 says this, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Now, I want to I just pause for a moment. How is Sarai getting this information? Through her husband. Wouldn't that be funny if your husband came home and said, I want to have a discussion with you. Your, your new name, uh, it's not Brienne, it's Brian. Right? Like, <laughs> God told me. Okay, fine, here we go. I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Isn't that powerful? Like, just the words that Yahweh uses for her is, like, unbelievable. Kings of people shall come from her. So what is the most logical response to this? Should be awe, worship, gratitude, high fives, like anything. No, nope. here's what Abraham, Abraham did. Then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. Think about this. Before he fell on his face in prostration and worship, now he is laughing so incredibly hard, he falls to the ground. This is like belly laughter. This is condescending. This is revealing so much about this man's state 13 years, way after he had Ishmael. Uh, The Lord has been, by the way, silent, and his first response is like, no way, awesome. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sarah, first of all, you want to change your name? (laughs) Second of all, She's, she's really old. Like, there's, not a, there's no way this is going to happen. And so God is like, you're going to watch, actually, I think one of the most interesting correspondences between God and somebody in Scripture. And uh, here, here's, here's what happens. Uh, he laughs, and he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now, this is going to be really irritating to watch. Okay, so just imagine how Sarah is feeling, okay? Years of neglect, displaced by this younger maidservant, Hagar, socially embarrassed and wrecked. God comes back and is like fighting for her. And then here's what Abraham says to God. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Thanks, God. No thanks. I'm happy with Ishmael. Keep your promise. That's what's happening. He's laughing hysterically, insulting God, insulting his wife, and says to God, no, we're good. I'm just going to go on with Ishmael because I like him a lot. So then God responds, as he does with all of our stupid decisions to go against his will. God said this, no. (laughs) I love that. No. But Sarah your wife, remember the legal woman that you married, that, you know, that woman that you committed your whole life to, to that to you part, right? That woman? No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Like, dialogue over. This is going to now go to a monologue, and it's going to be of epic proportions. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you, bro. Like, I've listened to everything you've said. 
Okay? I've already made decrees and promises over him. This kid is going to be blessed. And I understand that you like him. I understand that you're content with him. But I'm here to tell you this is exactly how this thing is going to go down. Behold, I have blessed him already. And I will make him fruitful and multiplying greatly. Just reiterating the same things he's told him over and over again. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of when Christians date non-Christians. And then the Lord is like, no, stop it. No, stop it. And then ultimately the Lord is like, intervenes and says, this is not my plan. This is not my desire. This is not my, from my opinion. This will not go well for you. And the Lord just has this strong rebuke, right? And then we're like, no, I'm going to keep going with my way. And God's like, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm going to make your life really, really, really hard. So then he reiterates in verse 21. He says this, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. We all have plans, do we not? Can we just say this? Abram is stuck in his plan. He's got an agenda. He's got a way. He's got a will. He's got an opinion. He's got a script for his future. He's got a thing he's going to do with his life. He's done with this Sarah woman, right? He's got Hagar, and now God is saying, no, we're actually going to change course here for the rest of your life. Leave this maidservant behind, and here's what I want you to do. Focus all of your attention and reignite your relationship with Sarah. She is going to be the queen to you being the king of this new people, the the Hebrew nation. My covenant isn't with uh, Hagar and Ishmael. It's with Isaac. So if you want me, this is the way it's going to happen. By the way, we're done over there. This is happening. There's nothing you can do about it. Like there are some like times that God intervenes and says, we're done. You've made too many dumb decisions. It's not happening anymore. You're going this way. And the Lord just rips things out of our life. You ever seen that? And this is so, so kind of God. I mean, at every corner, I've said this in every sermon, Abraham's a moron. He is just throwing away the promises. And God's like, stop doubting me. My plans are always infinitely better. But God, it was like 13 years, and you don't know how lonely I was, and things were really hard, and God's like, I don't care. I just don't care. My word is clear. My will is best. Don't go that direction. And and we have this privilege of watching God and Abraham interact on this stuff, right? And, And I just imagine this is the kind of conversation that many of us need to have with the Lord, where the Lord has to be like, listen, you're being dumb, okay? I love you. My covenant is with you. I'm not changing. Your salvation isn't being lost. Like, this whole relationship thing is secure. Like, we're fine, but the decisions you're making aren't honoring to me, and you know they're not a part of my will. You already know that. So we've got two options here. You can either stop it, or I can wreck your life. Take your pick. It's, it's that simple. So if you're really a believer, this is how God pushes you to the edge, And it's actually a really, really kind thing of God to do. What parent would let your son or daughter live in your house uh, when they're 15 years old and they're in complete rebellion and you just say, I don't want to be pushy, but my suggestion is that you wouldn't smoke pot. My suggestion is you wouldn't steal and do incredibly dumb things. No, that's not what you do when you have a child living in your home. You discipline because that's what good moms and dads do and that's what a good, awesome father does. We just say this, God's plans are always the best. I know you are so smart and you have a will and so do I. And I cannot tell you how many times my will has been flat wrong and the Lord has had to say, no, but this is what I want. And I just got to come back to this every time and say, no, your way is better. I want to go to point number two in your notes. And this is going to get maybe a little weird for some of you. So awkward is awesome. Right, Village Church? God's plans might hurt. (laughs) You're going to enjoy that title and laughing out on the way home. All right. We're going back to verse 9. Uh, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. 
you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Imagine there's like radio silence, drama. What's it going to be? Every male among you shall be circumcised. Okay. I like to imagine a 24-hour period of silence between verse 10 and verse 11. Okay? God just stops talking. He's done. Now, a little bit of inference, but go with me. Abram goes home to Hagar, goes home to Sarah, tells them the story. Uh, this is going to be amazing. Uh, and then he says to them, he probably didn't mean that, like, literally, right? right? And they're like, well, I mean, it sure feels like something he would do. Like, maybe he meant circumvented. Uh, let's look, circumlocution. Like, there's got to be other circum words that, like, he probably meant here. And then so... Um, Abram finally comes back to God and says, I've been thinking about it. Like, I've been trying to find out like, what you really meant because it felt really, I don't know, invasive. So when you said that, like, what, did you really, what did you really mean? Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Everyone should be greatly uncomfortable, by the way. It's in the Bible, so we can talk about it. <laughs> oh, oh, so you meant what you said. Yes, but just the kids, right? Verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations. Hmm, age isn't relevant, okay. Whether born in your house, good, or bought ad- adult. So, so when I buy somebody, that's, that's a weird conversation. Um, with your money and, okay, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, like, can you imagine how weird this is getting for him? Now, I don't care how normal this practice is in any given culture. It's all weird. Verse 13 says, Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. This is the amount of time this word comes up, because clearly God wants to hyperemphasize this. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Okay, I get it, God. But what if they don't want to be circumcised. Like, what if they're like, nope, sorry, not going to do it. Okay, good. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his force, don't you love the detail? Shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In short, kill them. Oh, so you're, you're really serious. Like, this is, this, is, this is not an option. Verse 22, this is, uh, might be my favorite part of this. When he, God, had finished talking with him, Abraham, God went up from Abram. Abraham. Conversation over. No dialogue. Like the moment Abram falls on his face, Abraham falls on his face laughing, God goes into monologue mode and is like, we're done. Let's go. Here we are. I'm out of here. I hope you have a good life. This is what you're doing, by the way. There are no questions asked, and if you don't do it, you're going to die. How's that? Bye. He just leaves. Verse 23. The question is, what is, what is he going to do? Then Abram took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. Abraham actually took it upon himself to do this with every single one of them, as God had said to do. The man of faith is emerging. This is beautiful. It's really disgusting, but it's beautiful what's happening in his heart. Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. In case you were wondering, 
whether or not he obeyed. The text wants to overly communicate with clarity what's happening. And all the men of his house, those born in his house and those bought with his money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. I want to talk about this sign of the covenant, if you will, from a more just broader global perspective. Um, It's actually very deep. And for Western eyes, this is super strange. Uh, when Jewish audiences would read this, this wouldn't have been that awkward for them. And so one of, my, one of my jobs and goals here is to take some of the awkward out of it and to put you in their shoes and help you hear how they would actually hear this. And so circumcision has a few levels of significance. And here's the first one. Um, it, is, it is just purely a physical thing. And here's what would happen with a sign of a covenant. A sign of a covenant is some physical um, entity or thing that is a, com- it is a uh, consistent reminder of the ultimate reality that the promise points to. And so you get to the Noahic covenant. This is the promise with Noah. And the promise is, I'll never flood the world again. And so God puts in the sky a rainbow, and it's a physical sign connected to water and rain and flooding. The sign of the covenant is connected to the promise of the covenant. And so uh, in this covenant, the sign is actually directly connected to the male organ for procreation. Why? Because the promise is around procreation. The promise is around progeny. The promise is around a multitude. The promise is around all of the people. And so this is par for the course of how signs of covenants would be implemented. But number two, this was very communal. Um, This uh, signified entrance into the Old Testament community of faith. And that if you were an adult and you wanted to be brought into the community of faith, this would actually be a requirement. Now, it's easy if you're eight days old because you can't remember that a whole lot. But if you're an adult, this is going to make you really think twice about whether or not you want to worship Yahweh, will it not? And so this, this, was a, this signaled, I am all in. Uh, I am here. I believe in Yahweh. Well, to what would you lose? To what, ex- what would you give up for him? And this is kind of the, the first test, if you will, of entrance into the Old Testament covenantal community. It was also legal. Uh, it symbolized consequences, legal consequences for unbelief. Uh, this idea that you could literally be cut off from your people and murdered or killed um, because of your refusal to do this. This actually had legal implications in terms of the community and how they interacted with one another. It was also a deeply spiritual symbol because God never does anything that's just like one-dimensional, does he? Like he's so complex and deep and there's so many dimensions to the strange things he asked us to do. It signified our deeper spiritual need. Jeremiah 4.4 4, um, says this, and this is actually very weird terminology, but for the Jews, it's normal. He says this, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Um, and he says, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What he's saying is this, your hearts are really, 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 really hard, and your sin needs to be cut away. And this is the metaphor that God would use with the people on a regular basis. Why? Because many of the men had gone through it, and they physically understood how actually invasive and difficult this act really is. So when, he's, when God says this to them, he's saying, he's saying, cut off your sin. Cut it off. Throw it away. Get it out. And I understand it's painful, but this is regularly what God would call the Israelites to do. Finally, it was relational. Uh, for adults, it signified a relationship with Yahweh, a personal relationship with Yahweh. Uh, this was the sign of the Old Covenant. And uh, let's have a little theology discussion just for a moment. Um, what is the sign of the New Covenant? 
Now, privately, this would be a blast of a conversation for me to have with any of you who have strong opinions. The, the best, the closest I could get to would be one of two things, maybe. Maybe baptism and maybe the Lord's Supper. It's interesting, if there is a sign to the New Covenant, um, the book of Hebrews, which is all about the New Covenant, never mentions it once. Um, the Bible, like, the closest thing you can maybe get to it would be Colossians 2, when there seems to be a, a connection between baptism and circumcision. It's like, it's a loose connection, but it's there. Or maybe uh, when we celebrate communion and Jesus says, um, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Like maybe that is where you could get to it. But these are physical things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, that the people of God do. They're external things that symbolize deep inward internal realities of the new covenant. Maybe, maybe that's what they're, I don't know. Um, but here's what I do know. God's command for every single believer is to be baptized. In fact, in the early first century, baptism would have been a social requirement for you to be brought into the church com- community. So the idea that you would not be baptized is a crazy idea for the early church. The idea that you would not engage in regular, we call, we call it now communion, but um, celebrating the Lord's Supper when you gathered was a crazy idea that you wouldn't engage in that on a regular basis. And so these are regular things that the people of God have done uh, do to symbolize the realities of, of the new covenant. And, and, and so it's a little interesting discussion, and uh, I'd love to debate that if any of you are really up for it. Uh, but here's what they do. God is always giving his people physical symbols that are palpable, emotional, and tangible reminders of the spiritual realities that he has done inside of us. I want, I want to close with a few so what's. Number one, the New Testament is steeped in awkward, awkward symbology and history, like just all over the place. And and here's what I find. When people who have never interacted with the Bible before um, open up the word of God, they are just weirded out by this. And they have to remember the word of God was written into this culture uh, thousands of years ago. I mean, this is a very different time and place. But the word of God, when you pull out its meaning, has such beauty and application for every single culture. Um, I love that every single culture can hear the story of Abraham and their relationship with God can be deepened profoundly. Do not let it freak you out. The Bible is not concerned with being PC okay, at all. It is concerned with being truthful, helpful, and accurate. That is its concern. But number two, when you'd have a personal question, uh, I'd love for you to engage your community groups in this. What would you do if God did not show up for 13 years? What would you do if in your time with the Lord, like you just, you didn't sense for 13 years any response for the Lord, any intimacy with God? What if, what if you just felt silence from him for 13 years? Here's my question. Would you wait in faithfulness? Would you wait in faithfulness? What, what if God told you to do something and then just went radio silent, would you still do it even if he only told you once and didn't give you reminder after reminder after reminder after reminder? And and here's the easy answer. When God doesn't perform for you or show up or do what you expect him to do, the answer is found in how we typically respond in those moments. Do we compromise faithfulness to the Lord, to what we know, because we don't feel him like we want? And finally, my last So what for you? The promise is everlasting, and it is to anybody who would trust in Yahweh. I love this. When the New Testament takes this idea of the Abrahamic covenant, 
It beautifully unfolds it. And I want to read to you from Genesis chapter, or Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to 29. Listen to this. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here's what he says, listen here. And if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And right at the beginning, the answer is given. How do you become an heir according to promise? How do you become a son of God? He says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. I want to just take a a moment before we celebrate communion together and just give you a huge encouragement and reminder. The one way to become a son of God, to be part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, which is reaffirmed and reiterated and expanded in what's called the new covenant. If you want to be in this covenant relationship with God where he commits himself to you, it happens only and ever through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is it. And so we're about to celebrate communion here in just a moment. And this is just a beautiful reminder that Jesus Christ is fulfilled in his body. He is fulfilled on the cross. All of the promises that God made to Abram. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, uh, I, I committed myself, Abram, to take on my body all of your violations of the covenant. And then on the cross, this is exactly what God did for us. And so if you, if you want all of your violations uh, to be forgiven and redeemed, it only happens through trusting in Jesus Christ that he died on the cross as a substitute for your sins and God raised him from the dead. And if that is where you're at today, if you are like, I don't know why I believe, but I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I don't want to have to be the one to pay the price for my sins. I want Jesus to be the one to do that for me. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that God raised him from the dead, if you believe salvation isn't about being good, but Jesus was good for you, here's the most beautiful reminder is that you get brought into the promises that God gave to Abraham. You become heirs with Abraham of this promise, of this covenant that God forever commits himself to you. Forever. It's beautiful. So I want to take a moment. I want to pray for you. We're going to celebrate communion and we're going to remember and reflect on the fact that our God has kept his promise and that we have access to this covenant through faith in Jesus. Father, I love you. Thank you for the weirdness of this story. Thank you for the beauty of what it symbolizes. Thank you, God, that even right now, we are not bound by old covenant law. We're not bound by laws of circumcision. We are, the law we're bound by is faith expressed itself in love. And God, we just confess to you that we are very much like Abram. We have plans, we have agendas, and Lord, um, we do confess in this moment that yours are better. Ours might feel more enjoyable in the moment, but yours are infinitely better. And even sometimes the things you ask us to do, the will that you have for us can sometimes be very painful, inconvenient, and frustrating. But Lord, even then, we confess that your way is always and infinitely better. And Lord, for all the times that we doubt, thank you for giving us Jesus our perfect substitute who paid the price for our violations for us in our place. We love you and we worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.